This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. right now we're going to talk about another one of my passion projects or, or passion topics I should say and that's black babies in education this is one of my favorite discussions because uh, you know I'm a parent and even before I was a parent I love black children and I think that there's so much that we can do for them. My next guest, Jamila Lemieux, one of my favorite people. She is a communications consultant, a fixer, a podcast host, and most importantly for these purposes, an award-winning writer. And I should also say most importantly for these purposes, an amazing mom uh, who's also rumored to be a leading millennial voice around issues of race, gender, and sexuality. She also is one of those pesky black feminists who keep challenging the status quo, and yet she remains fresh and fab at all times. Jamila, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Listen, I know you are doing you are doing a lot right now because you are on the West Coast and it is it is not eleven twenty four there. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I thank you for your timing and your flexibility. And one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you is because you know for if if you don't mind me sharing just a little bit about our personal background, uh, our children, our daughters went to the same school. It was an African centered preschool, um, and I think. Your daughter might have been my daughter, one of her first friends <laughs> at that preschool. Mm-hmm. And it was an African-centered preschool in Brooklyn, Little Sun People. I'm going to shout y'all out. Uh, Little Sun People, an amazing 36-year institution um, that intentionally intentionally focuses on the healthy development and the academic nurturing of black children. Other children are welcome to come, but they are going to be submitted to or or a part of an African-centered curriculum. And Jamila, you recently wrote an article about the qualifications you look for in a school. And you talked about the fact that, you know, you're not necessarily looking for the, the top ranking in your school. You're not necessarily looking for all of those barometers that we're often taught as new parents to, to check out. And, and I want wanted you to share a bit with the audience what motivated you to write that article and what brought you to a point where you had a different set of criteria for what a healthy education for your black daughter would look like. Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me, Larry. I've learned so much over the years watching you, mother, um, and, and listening <laughs> to you sense. talk about education and, and the things that we have to do to make sure that our children receive um, the best one possible. So thank you. I am, um, you. you know, when I had, well, first of all, I, I was asked by the nation to write the article for a package on radical parenting um, that they were doing. And so when Danny McLean, who was the editor for the series, reached out, you know, she didn't know what my perspective was going to be. She just wanted to know what my take was on school integration, you know, and if I had a personal mm-hmm. story to tell. And I was like, well, absolutely. You know, I've uh, quite recently had gone through the process of pivoting away from something that I've been very um, passionate about and very clear that I wanted my child at what I thought was the best possible school for her in most circumstances, which would be a black school, right? Mm-hmm. If we could find a black school that performed well, you know, it doesn't have to be the top ranked school. It doesn't have to have all the resources and the bells and the whistles and the programs that, you know, parents are often told to look at when considering a great school. If it was filled with black people who loved the children that were attending the school and mm. knew their culture and cared about their culture and could respect them and affirm them as uh, 
descendants of Africa and as people who had a right to exist in this world in a meaningful way. That's where I wanted my child. I didn't want somewhere mm-hmm. where she had to explain or defend her humanity on a regular basis where she was having to um, humanize herself in the eyes of other kids and perhaps even adults Mm -hmm. in order to be treated uh, fairly or or to be seen as somebody who was worthy of support or um, attention. And so we started out with our daughter um, after little son people going to another school in Brooklyn that was you know, largely black and largely uh, populated by black folks and adults that loved black children. Mm -hmm. And when we came out to LA, it was a different story. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't quite as easy to find that. Um, We found a school that we really liked for Naima. Uh, I was really passionate about it. And then Corona happened. Right. Right. And I think a lot of us found ourselves um, having to, to, faced some of the shortcomings about some of those black schools when we were forced into a distance learning model, mm-hmm. right? right? Because this is when we realized who has access to technology and who doesn't, or, you know, which teachers have been trained to teach in this sort of way or to use the computer in a classroom in and, and, and such a way that it can become the classroom. And that left us a little bit vulnerable. And, and we sent Naima somewhere else for a couple of weeks. And I realized that that was not for her. Wow. And what was it about that experience that showed you it was not for her? Uh, well, you know what? It's because she was the only black girl in her class. We didn't Ooh, stick around. Well, that's an easy one. You know, we, um, she, it, it was a, she left her original school here for the first couple of weeks of second grade, uh, which was done remotely to attend a school that had this really strong, strong virtual learning model um, Mm. that they debuted last year. And, you know, it it wasn't something I was necessarily excited about doing, but I was, you know, willing to consider it because I know how difficult uh, those first few months of learning during the pandemic were for her. And, and, you know, when you have a school where it's like, we've got more games and we don't do homework and, you know, we've got all these technology things going on. It, it was compelling, you know, but I just can't like, can you imagine at this moment in history, Larry having to be the only child, only black child in your school, anywhere, anywhere in the country, right. Mm -hmm. During the, during, uh, in in the shadows of, of racial uprising and the most, you know, bitter and complicated election cycle of, of, you know, our children's lifetimes, really, for them to be the only little chocolate chip somewhere. I just couldn't do that to her. Mm. You know, it's funny. I was teaching a workshop uh, with Brian last night and we were it's a parenting workshop and we're talking about, you know, uh, some of the racial justice issues that are taking place right now. And there was one young sister. It was it was a parent workshop, but children were able to come because it was virtual. Uh, you know, you have just a lot more flexibility. And one sister who is now at Brooklyn Tech, which for those of you who don't know, is one of the premier high schools in Brooklyn, in New York City, quite frankly, one of the top eight schools, a specialized school. And she talked about the fact how in elementary school, and she'd never told her mother this. This was the the thing that stuck with me. In elementary school, her mom would, you know, her mom uh, would comb her hair up into a puff ball, you know, a ponytail, a black girl ponytail, which is an Afro puff, but a puff ball. And the other white kids, because she was in a predominantly black school, would pet her puff 
And she didn't know how to tell them that she felt like it. She didn't have the words because in second grade, who's got the words? Unless you've gone to a little some people. right? But like who's who's got the words in third grade to say you're disrespecting me and it's because my hair is African textured and you're this is a racist moment. You don't have that language. Frankly, as adults, a lot of us don't have that language. But she held on to that until she got to high school and then began telling her mom, you know, this is why I never wanted you to do my hair like this. And her mom never knew. And the mom was was flabbergasted because she was of the impression i i sent you to the best school and the best is that sort of generic you know they as you said they've got the bells and whistles they've got all the things the best school and i did not know that that school was breaking your heart and Mm -hmm. that to me i think is something that we as parents have to think about because when we're talking about education it's not just reading writing and arithmetic it's are you who are you becoming (laughs) who are you being trained to become and and what is being poured into you and what is being taken away from you and and so i i think that when we're talking about identity identifying places for our children to go to school we we have sort of this model and and i'm interested in your thoughts on this the model says you you go to the best school if you can and you Mm -hmm. you learn to master whiteness as best as you can because that's what these curriculums largely are you're learning to master white history white expressions uh white approaches to things like science and math all the disciplines they have a cultural grounding in some space and then we hope Mm -hmm. you speak well enough you go to a good college and then there's a question of is it going to be a pwi or an hbcu but the ultimate goal for most parents and who are not thinking about this really is I want you to go to school get good grades go get a good job make good money and buy a house usually not in the neighborhood where you were raised and that sort of it's it's almost like a push out model of of like go and get the best and the best is not here and I compare that to a friend of mine who finished her MBA many years ago and came back to the hood because she wanted to work in the hood could not get a job could not find Mm -hmm. a way to use her MBA effectively in creating job opportunities for herself while working in the community and ended up going into the nonprofit industry. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. what your thoughts are on that model of success. Is it functional for us? Does it work for us? And does it produce the results academically that we should be striving for as a community? You know, I would say no. I I think that it has produced a number of black people that have made indigenous, excuse me, They've made very individualized gains for themselves and perhaps their immediate families. You know, that they may have been able to perhaps transcend the economic circumstances of their childhood and, and to take that relocation. But it hasn't always, you know, when, you, when the message, whether it's a clear one or a subtle one, is the best thing you can do for yourself is to transcend the circumstances of your birth Mm. it implies that something is wrong with the circumstances of your birth right so we we don't want to be known as products of our environment that means that something's wrong with our environment Mm. but but it's it's not that we're you know that that we should disregard the fact that there are uh issues that are um native to our experiences as black people that there are things that are common in our neighborhoods that are not good that need to be you know addressed but if it's as if we're positing blackness as the problem to be solved how can i learn my way out of this how can i earn my way out of this Mm. as opposed to what's the best version of this for me and for us right like how within the confines if you find black to be 
um, you know, limiting because I've always found it to be expansive. I found my time in my HBCU to be, you know, one where I was surrounded by the most diverse population of people that I've ever been in the privilege of, you mm. know, um, being in close quarters with for, for so long. But some people see blackness as not big enough, you know, right. not good enough. And right. if that is the place that you're coming from, it's going to be reflected in what you put out, you know, regardless of what you're making um, at the end of the year or where you've been able to purchase a house. Mm. Now, you had mentioned earlier that uh, in a new school experience, your daughter being the only black child in the classroom was was the the alarm bell that you needed in order to make a different decision. What are some Mm -hmm. of the other alarm bells parents should be on the lookout for that might indicate, yo, you got it. You're going to have to come up to this school. (laughs) You're going to have to be here a little bit more. We're going to have to handle some things. And and email is simply not going to be enough. What are some of the triggers and, and some of the warning signs that we should be looking for? You know, what challenged it, or I think one thing that really blew me uh, about that experience or that disappointed me was that at, at this school, which, you know, is, is I've heard lovely things about it from other parents that are there. Um, and I did, you know, I'll, I'll say that. If so there were two, Naima was the one of two little black girls in her class. The other one hadn't started school yet when, we, you know, by the time I made the decision. She showed up the day that I pulled Naima out. Hmm. Um, Mm. It turned out there were also, and I had a conversation with the principal schedule because I wanted to know, when I found out the name was the only black kid in our class, I wanted to know, were there other black kids in the other second grade class? And if so, why would you divide them? Mm. Right? And it turned out that there were two in each class. Why not put those four kids together? Why not allow them to have each other as opposed to allowing them or, or forcing them to be a sprinkle of diversity for the other kids? Mm. You know, if you're in a situation where your children are perhaps outnumbered, but there are other black kids there, that is the conversation that needs to be had with school leadership. Not just, you know, are we facilitating space for these children to support one another, but what is the school doing to support them? Mm. Right? Like, I, I, that was a question that I had. You know, we had just ended, we'd had this, you know, very um, difficult for, for children, especially summer of all these, you know, upright, all this uprising, uh, this, all this turmoil related to race and specifically the experience of black people in this country. What are you all prepared to say to my child about that, particularly mm. considering that she would be in the minority there? Right. You know, if your child's history is not on the curriculum at all outside of Black History Month, if there are things that are just not being acknowledged that need to be acknowledged about who your child is and where they come from in the world, that is the conversation to be having Mm -hmm. um, with their teacher and with school leaders. I think you have to, you know, we have to be advocates for our children. You know, that's something that, you know, I've watched you model um, and, and talk about for so very long. And it's difficult. I think a lot of us are not, you know, not everyone is prepared to have to take a very, or, or, understands that they have to take a very um, hands-on approach to making sure that black children receive a a good education, right? They might think that sending them to the school is enough, but if they're not a part of the story that's being told to them and and, and, and in a loving way, then they're going to have some challenges uh, coming, you know, coming up. And I think about the young lady who was being petted like a puppy or a kitten by her classmates who very well, you know, this could have been, a nasty form of racial bullying. This could have been 
a sweet version of children who have simply been, you know, had not spent a lot of time around black people just being, you know, genuinely curious. But whatever it was, it shows me that the teachers in that classroom were not often enough reading books that have black faces and little Mm. girls with black Afro puffs and ensuring that the other children in that class saw this girl as a human being as one of them as opposed to something novel and different. Hmm. You know, what you said, I think is true. A lot of us simply aren't prepared to have that type of conversation. And then let's add to the fact that if I'm working two, three jobs and now you're telling me I I sent you to the school because I presume the school's got it because that's sort of the expectation. We don't we only have public school because of the fight of black people, uh, because black people implemented public school. Like that was on the backs of of our, our advocacy because there was no public schooling system happening across the country until black people began demanding for their children to have spaces to be properly educated. And I think the reality is as parents, we hope and we pray that this school is going to at least get our kids the access to that success model that I outlined, you know, get a job, get the grades, interview well, speak enough whiteness that you can, you know, take the bass out of your voice at the appropriate times and get hired. And the idea that we kind of have to flip that model on its head I think it's something that I really took away from reading your article, and, I, and I'm so glad that you wrote it. And I'm glad that the nation put this together, because what we have to do, I think, and, and push back on this if, if you disagree or if you think I, I'm going in the wrong direction, I think our success model needs to be, what is your education doing to prepare you to solve the problems in your community? Because when you're working for other people, you're solving problems for their community. You are meeting right. a need. You are addressing something. What if we had a model that says your education is a success if you are able to go to school, learn about who you are in the context of where you are, learn everything you need in terms of reading and writing from a perspective and a cultural approach that centers you and then allows you to, I don't know, open a business where you can hire black people <laughs> or I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm off in left field here, but, but what would you say to, to having a different conversation about what academic success actually looks like? I think that's exactly the conversation that we should be having, you know, and I think that is a conversation that will lead uh, some of our folks, as you mentioned earlier, you know, after they've gotten through the the hurdle of getting the child through um, high school, then it's like, well, should they go to an HBCU or a PWI? And then all these questions of why, you know, can can an HBCU be sufficient if they don't have the same resources there, if it's not one of the big ones. But when Mm -hmm. you go to these places, you have the opportunity to, like you said, you are being trained to solve someone's problems in a college. Most of what we're doing at school is we're being trained to participate in capitalism, Mm. right? Like this is not necessarily the school, you know, unfortunately there is a lot of opportunity in schools of all uh, shapes, sizes, and and, uh, designs to improve how school addresses the self-esteem, the emotional health and, and wellness. Um, mm. the, the true needs of a, of a young learner. But if, if they're succeeding or if they're doing anything, they're training people to go out and be in the workforce. At HBCUs, yes, you're being trained to go out into the workforce. And yes, there's a lot of conversation. You know, there's certainly been a lot of conversations over the years about, um, you know, be, some graduates feeling better prepared to go out and work for white folks than, you know, to start something themselves because mm. uh, for many years, some of our schools were doing exactly that, right? That was their, that was their focus and their goal to get you and somebody else's company making good money. Right. Um, but even with that, right, even with those shortcomings, 
when your self-esteem has been nurtured, when your personhood has been addressed, mm. you can emerge better prepared to be um, to, to play an important role in your community, to start a business, to become a teacher in a school like the sort of school you would want your children to attend, um, mm. to serve and meet the needs of that community. And I think that that is the the pivot that we need to make, that it's mm. how, you know, is my school preparing my child to function in the world, to take care of themselves, but also to meet the needs of the black community, to be of service mm. to other black people. And I think that also means we need to be demanding that uh, the schools are adjusting to what we need. I'm reminded, you know, when there is certain religious communities in the South that did not want evolution taught in school because they believed in the creation model. They organized and said, what you ain't going to do is teach our children something that we don't agree with. And the school curriculum had to change. So I, I think we have a power here that is untapped as yet. And, and I'm so grateful for you uh, sharing your story about picking this school for your child and the challenges that you've gone through. And, and just for your openness and willingness to talk about parenting from a, a black parent's perspective who wants to raise a child uh, who knows who she is. And I think that is just so important. Let's give her a warm round of applause. Thank you so much, Jamila. Thank you, Larry. Thank you for having me.